I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. Today, I have a conversation with Dr. Laura Briggs. She's a professor of gender studies at the University of Massachusetts, and she also has a new book coming out this September titled How All Politics Became Reproductive Politics. You know, every time I talk to Laura, I feel like I've been schooled, but in a really good way. She talks about the history of reproductive rights in the context of welfare reform, the foreclosure crisis, and of course, Trump. We talk about the weakening of the social safety net and and how race baiting is used to weaken those safety nets for all women. She makes connections between political strategies and reproductive rights that I didn't know existed. She also explains what the abortion battle is really about, and it may not be what you think. So without further ado, here's Dr. Laura Briggs. Dr. Laura Briggs, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You have a book that's coming out this fall titled How All Politics Became Reproductive Politics. And I'm so excited for this book because it's so timely considering, you know, there are these daily assaults on our reproductive rights, right? And and I'm hoping that you're the person who can, you know, talk me down from the ledge. One of the things I wanted to talk to you firstly was about the anniversary of Roe v. Wade. So the 45th anniversary It's just around the corner, and I think it's in January. But I feel like we've spent, you know, it's been a half century since this was made into law, but I feel like we've spent, you know, a fourth to a half of this time just defending it and trying to protect it. Do you think that we have a false sense of security around Roe v. Wade? I think Roe v. Wade has become the new normal for us, or rather, I should say, abortion rights. And when I was 16, Roe v. Wade was six years old, and my best friend got an abortion. And I was so conscious of how fiercely won that set of choices was for us. In the intervening generations, we've become used to the idea that birth control works, and if it doesn't, then we don't have to stay pregnant if we don't want to. That said, there are an awful lot of women and girls who do stay pregnant who don't want to because they have people in their lives who either persuade them that it's morally wrong to abort a fetus or it's... um, or that it's against their wishes and that they somehow are entitled to make that decision for the person who's probably going to do most of the parenting after the child is born and certainly is going to do all of the carrying of the child. But we're now looking at Roe v. Wade being seriously under attack. And one of the things that we lost, I think, in the 45-year fight to protect Roe v. Wade was the understanding that that was always only part of a feminist agenda around children and the ability to raise the children we want as well as to not have the children we don't want or to have the children we want when we want them and not at some earlier or later time. And so a growing number of people are following people like Loretta Ross and Sister Song, which is a feminist, a black feminist health organization in Atlanta, and trying to talk increasingly about reproductive justice to remind us that we have a much broader feminist politic around reproduction than just abortion rights. The things like a $15 minimum wage has a great deal to do with how we might think about what's important for reproduction. We can't raise a kid on air, 
We need decent wages. We need the ability to live our lives in communities that are free of violence from the state. So if the police are killing young folks in our communities, that's a threat to our reproductive rights. That if we don't have safety in our homes because of sexual violence or intimate partner violence, other kinds of intimate partner violence, that that's a threat to our ability to raise children in the ways that we want. Right. I, I remember reading the story about your friend in high school, and you also talked about in that in that same piece about how that changed the trajectory of her future and how you thought about it in that context about the freedom that, that you had and the choices that she had, you know, had Roe v. Wade because it was in effect, right? And I think, Absolutely. Right. And I think that, you know, the people who are in the primary voting block, women who have the safety net of maturity, they have financial security and they have family security, you know, maybe they already have a family and they're done. We have a tendency to take for granted the power that a woman has when she has, you know, full control over her reproductive rights. That's right. And to the extent that we have young people in our lives or in our communities or Older folks who don't have the financial security to raise children under the conditions that they want or the safety to raise the raise children, we need to be conscious of how incredibly important Roe v. Wade still is or how important abortion rights are. Right. So, you know, I feel like there's been this kind of constant encroachment on Roe v. Wade, and it's kind of, you know, flown under the radar. Um, you know, we have these, you know, trap laws, the targeted regulation of, of abortion providers, and then we have record numbers of closures of abortion clinics, and then there are these conscious clauses, right? And I feel like they'll be in the in the headlines for a short period, but for the most part, we kind of have this sense of security that really isn't there. It'll be in the headlines for a day, and then it's gone, and we don't realize Roe v. Wade is being chipped away at daily, we it, it's an interesting moment um, in, legally in the sense that last year's Supreme Court decision on abortion, the whole women's health case in Texas, actually did more to roll back trap laws than anything we've seen since the Casey decision in the mid-80s. So it was the Casey decision that allowed that created the framework for trap laws. It allowed some reasonable degree of regulation of abortion, even in the first trimester. And what constituted reasonable, what was an undue burden on women and their reproductive rights was incredibly unclear. So the conservative right or the anti-abortion right set out to limit abortion by chipping away at it under the framework laid out by Casey. But Whole Women's Health said, hey, you can't create these ridiculous regulations that every abortion clinic essentially has to have the facilities of a hospital and admitting privileges in a hospital because they serve no, it serves no purpose. It doesn't protect women's health, doesn't do anything. So we actually had, we had the best framework that we've had in, since 1984. And now we have, now we have a different context because Mitch McConnell in the Senate essentially stole a Supreme Court seat from Obama. So now we have three octogenarians on 
the Supreme Court, who presumably are not going to make it through, maybe not through a four-year Trump presidency, certainly not through an eight-year Trump presidency. The conservative right, especially the anti-abortion conservative right, is hoping to get a hold of the Supreme Court for the first time in a generation, to really shift it way to the right. And abortion is one of the issues. Abortion is really not the only issue. The important thing to understand about the Republican coalition is that it's got two wings. One of them care a lot about low taxes, rights for corporations, limiting rights for workers, and that. And then it's got this whole other wing that is associated with evangelical and um, Christians and other conservative religious folks for whom family and religion are everything. And they're the ones who actually care about abortion. But the Supreme Court justices who step up, who are prepared to step up and try to outlaw gay marriage or try to limit abortion rights are the exact same ones who are going to ensure that corporations have tons of rights and workers have very few rights. These things go together. They're of a piece. Right. You make the connection of these anti-abortion campaigns and their relationship to morality, not just protecting the, the fetus. And, you know, when you when you talked about the story about your friend in high school, it kind of brought some memories of my own back from my own childhood growing up in, in the Deep South. So my mother was actually a nurse and she worked in some Planned Parenthood clinics and some other clinics that performed some similar services. And, you know, she would bring these stories back to me of girls who were my age, you know, um, in the context of, you know, this is what could happen to you, you know, keep your knees together. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. but the interesting thing about that is that birth control was readily available. Abortion was legal. So there was really no reason <laughs> to keep my legs together other than, you know, this being this being about sex. And I understood she wanted me to, you know, keep my options open and not have you know, a pregnancy as a teenager. But being in the Deep South, you know, this was just all about sex, really. And you, you make that connection in the, one of the articles that you wrote. Well, the thing is, if it was really about abortion, there are people for whom abortion, they really believe abortion is murder. And I understand those people. But if you believe that abortion is murder, you don't write an exception for rape or incest. Because murder is murder. It doesn't matter who the person is, what they're doing, um, how they were conceived. It's just murder. Once you begin to carve out these exceptions, well, if it's rape, well, if it's incest, and what that tells me is these are people who are actually very concerned about how that fetus was conceived. And the fetus, if it was conceived outside of wedlock, well then, somebody needs to be punished for having sex at the wrong time and in the wrong way. And what most people don't acknowledge is that the majority of abortions are to women who already have a child, several children, many of them are married, um, or in long-term partnerships. And that's not who we think of when we think of who needs abortion. And there's a good reason for that. The reason is we're not focused on whether they're having the wrong kind of sex or sex at the wrong time. We're focused on girls, young women who aren't married yet, who shouldn't be having sex at all. That's how I know 
that they're not just worried about the status of the fetus. They're deeply worried about the status of sex, and especially women's sexuality. You know, I didn't think that in 2017 I'd have to worry about strangers in D.C., well, strange men, no less, trying to keep me from having sex. You know, that's my mother's job. Right. You know, you and I have in common that our mothers worked at Planned Parenthood oh, really? when we were kids. <laughs> um my mother was volunteering at Planned Parenthood both before and after Roe v. Wade. We were in Connecticut. Abortion was legal before Roe v. Wade, and, but deeply contested. And so every day she was sort of advising, she was advising people who were conflicted about a pregnancy or who were not conflicted about a pregnancy. Some of them were delighted to be pregnant. Some of them absolutely knew what they were going to do if they found out that they were pregnant. But the ones, of course, that stayed with her were the people that she talked to and talked to about whether they could have that child then. Those were really hard conversations and really hard decisions. And I think what it left my mother with, and certainly, you know, by extension me with, is that there's no way people are making abortion decisions lightly. People are struggling with those decisions and making the best choice that they can for themselves, their other children, and their families, or their partners, or the, or they just want to be able to have sex without the fear of children. That's not an unreasonable desire. Right. I mean, so the thing is, what you said earlier about, you know, there are different wings of the anti-abortion campaign, right? There's several of them, right? And then some of them come at it, you know, and I almost have empathy for the group that truly believes that abortion is murder, right? You know, they, you know, they explain their case, whether you agree with them or not. But this kind of paternalistic policing of sex, there's that wing, which I think is, you know, being driven by, you know, the men in our government. I think that's right. Although I think there are a surprising number of women who feel like the, that the case for the choices they've made and the kinds of commitments that they make to their family depends on how other people see their families. Now, here's what I mean by this. Before, about, before World War II, definitely before the 1920s, conservative Christians didn't care about politics at all. They believed it was best left in God's hands and the world was corrupting and they shouldn't have anything to do with it. And after World War II and growing into the 50s and 60s, people like Jerry Falwell convinced Christians that their well-being, the well-being of their small families, communities, churches, religious communities, depended on other people not doing things. We saw that most clearly in the gay marriage debate, which was horrendously confusing to some of us. Wait, I don't understand. You mean if gay people get married, something bad's going to happen to your marriage? How's that going to work? Right. Gay people are going to come and do what to your family? Um, but they became, they became very good at working people up and convincing them that God would... God would punish America if it didn't have the right kind of morality overall, and that their own families would be weakened if other people made different kinds of choices. And so it took a while. It was not immediate that evangelical Christians took on the issue of abortion. They slowly—because really, who cares? 
My neighbor down the street has an abortion. What do I care? It has nothing right. to do with me, right. right? Unless I believe that somehow that affects us all. And in some sense, it's really commendable to have a sense of the moral fabric of my community being entirely connected. Certainly, I care about the well-being of my whole community, but I don't think of my neighbor's abortion decision as affecting me. They do. And I think that the bargain, especially conservative women have struck with their community and their men is if they agree to what might be a secondary role, being in charge of the children, the family, that's they're still going to get super rewarded for it. They're going to get to be on a pedestal. And it might be not exactly the same as having power or authority or autonomy, but it's an okay deal. When you compare it or when they compare it to the deal that say what they would say is democratic women get democratic women get to um work their hearts out at a paid job and come home and do all the work at home and they don't get any special privileges for it right nobody's putting them on a pedestal and so i think what conservative women decided is that there was definitely something moral at stake in insisting on the value of family and children for their own sake, and that those had to be commonly held values or that their own well-being would suffer. Right, you know, but the interesting thing is that concern for the morality of the community is very selective, right? <laughs> you don't hear people coming out and, you know, arguing for the safety of, you know, children who are dying at the hands of police, you know, unarmed children, and it's very selective. Right, what they've been convinced of is that... These are bad actors, right? That whole deployment of the language of thugs, that these kids who are getting killed by the police are thugs. And it's a very, forgive me, but it's a very black and white moral universe that they inhabit. They're good people and they're bad people. Good people do well. Bad people suffer. Not their problem. But I think that the opening, the political opening of a reproductive justice politics is to insist that all children matter, that we need to be talking about the well-being of all the children in our community. I was reading something super interesting from a, by a very conservative person who was a woman who was horrified by Trump's election and was working with Indivisible to think about healthcare and alternatives to Trump and the whole thing. And she said, the thing that was just fascinating to me was how much Democrats are doing to lower the abortion rate. They're promoting birth control. They're promoting um, good values. They're promoting stable marriages. And if only the word could get out in my community that these people aren't just advocating killing babies. And I thought that was so telling about the extent to which the right does not see a, a morality on the left at work at all, right? Um, we think when we're talking about anti-racist politics or pro-immigration politics or decent wages for all, that we're very much speaking about a moral language. 
But bill of goods that's been sold to those on the Christian right is that there's no morality on the left or liberal end of the spectrum at all. Right. And you talk about, I think in your book, about reproductive rights through this lens of race and those conservative dog whistles that have kind of helped push the the you know, conservative thinking in that direction, you know, like the the welfare mother and, you know, immigrant mothers. Talk a little bit about that. Right. So the genius of a figure like Reagan was to unite what I was characterizing as two wings of the Republican coalition before. They're not necessarily the Republican Party. I mean, really, they're a conservative coalition. And there's the, we want wages low and we want prices low. We want high profits for the 1%, low taxes for the 1%. There's that side of the Republican Party, which has been particularly in evidence, for example, around the healthcare debate, right? It's the Paul Ryan, Mitch McConnell wing of the, of the party that's about, hey, give the rich a tax break and we don't really care what happens to anybody's health care. And then the other part of the Republican coalition is this conservative family values. It's all about they're coming for my religion, they're coming for my family wing. What Reagan was a genius at was uniting those two wings. So he would come out and say things like, we need to get rid of government programs like welfare, because what they're doing is subsidizing black women who are having children out of wedlock. And if we can just cut government programs, we'll stop having these immoral families and people will learn to stand on their own two feet and learn the value of work. Now, everything about that was deceitful, right? Welfare was 1% of the federal budget. It wouldn't make the slightest difference in um, taxes. And it was also deceitful that welfare was primarily a program used by black women. The the largest number of beneficiaries of welfare were white children, right? Right. But if you persuade people that that's that's what the universe is, that you're trying to solve this problem, apparently you can get a lot of white voters to essentially vote against their own economic interests and cut the federal and state social safety nets because they think what they're voting against is immorality and that that immorality wears a face that's not white. It's immigrant, it's black, it's Latino. And they are convinced that by and large, those are people that they're afraid of, they're strangers to their community. And this is what the social safety net is benefiting. And it was really effective. I was just going to say, but surely, you know, these groups of women, you know, white women, since they were, you know, the primary beneficiaries of, you know, the social safety net and it was being like slowly chipped away, they must have felt that and understood that, you know, perhaps this isn't good. Right. I I guess I'm just confused as to why that, you know, election after election, they've continued to give conservatives their vote. Right. It's that's the six million dollar question. Right. Um, I think I make sense of it through W.E.B. Du Bois in Black Reconstruction. And we talk a lot about white privilege these days, but Du Bois told us a different story about white privilege. It wasn't the unearned privilege that white folks get by virtue of being white. It was specifically the way that white people were duped. That is, 
white people get a deal. You can't organize across the working class and get higher wages. But if you agree to cast your alliance not with people who are in a similar socioeconomic situation to you, but rather with other white people, then here's the deal we're going to give you. The police aren't going to harass you. In fact, Du Bois said they're going to allow you to get away with all sorts of criminality. You're going to get access to parks and libraries, swimming pools, the whole deal. And people of color are not going to have the same access to public spaces. And that was the deal, he said, that was offered after the Civil War to working class and impoverished whites. And they took it. And that that story has been played out over and over again in U.S. history, especially in recent U.S. history. I think that's a really good lens through which to make sense of the deal that white women got in relationship to welfare reform. White women may have lost the best exit there was from a violent, abusive marriage because... If you t- if you got welfare and Section 8 housing, you could leave an abusive husband, keep body and soul together for six months or a year, get other housing while you put your life back together and start it over. White women lost a lot when they lost that. But what they got instead was, was white privilege in Du Bois's sense. They got to be seen as, uh, they got access to good schools, libraries, pools. Think about that. That is actually the realm of women. That's what women, if women are guarding over the children, the family, the private sphere, that's their stuff. It was a lousy deal, but they took it. Right. Do you think that people are conscious of this? Uh, I mean, I I don't get the sense that, right. (laughs) I don't give. I don't no. give a sense that people are coming because if they did, they would. They would obviously feel duped, and they would change your party. But <laughs> right. But you know, the interesting. I think one of the clever things about this is that you know the wealth gap is growing, right, for everyone, including whites, right, and people are right. very, very angry about this, and they voted out of anger. At least that's the, the, those. Those were some of the reasons that people who voted for Trump, women who voted for Trump, have given, right? That, you know, the growing wealth gap, you know, we don't have the jobs that we used to have. But the clever thing about what conservatives did is that they then focused the blame on people of color and immigrants and say, you know, it's not us. We didn't pull your social safety net you know, away. It's because there are more people of color and immigrants who are taking your jobs. Right. It's, it's a transparent example of what Du Bois was arguing. Why on earth would you vote with the 1% if your problem is that they're getting all the wealth and you're not? What would have to happen in your mind to persuade you that your best interests lay in that direction? And it's only the mobilization of the fear of black, Latino, native, and immigrant folks that makes that make any sense at all. But it's clear that you're being duped, right? When you sort of lay it out that way. Obviously, your best bet would be to organize together with other impoverished folks to take some of the wealth back that the 1% is getting in bigger and bigger fistfuls.
right? You know, I've been thinking a lot about this in the context of the last election. I mean, I think anyone who's paying attention knows the statistics out of the last election that, you know, 53% of white women voted for Trump, and I think 94% of black women voted for Hillary. And there's similar, you know, numbers across the board for all women of color. You know, generally, women of color voted for Hillary Clinton. And I've been thinking a lot about this and how, you know, we were somehow not as easily duped (laughs) as some other groups who voted. And, you know, as a woman of color myself, you know, I think that in the lives of women of color generally, every day we're kind of put in the position of making compromises, right? And, you know, generally we don't have the luxury of gambling on a candidate. We don't have the luxury of requiring that a candidate is perfect, right? We need to make the right decision to, you know, to ensure that someone's in office who's going to, you know, look out for her needs, even, you know, even at a minimal level. So, you know, you can also slice up the electoral pie in a variety of ways. And what you find is that people with a college education didn't vote for Trump. And the, and unless they were extremely wealthy Wall Street business folk. So, so there was also a conspicuous gender gap among folks with a, with a college degree where for men it seemed very clear that their connection to the 1% was going to work for them. So the 1% is always going to vote Republican because they're going to believe that the Republicans are going to continue to cut taxes, continue to cut the social safety net because that's the price of cutting taxes, right? You cut back on um, schools and roads and the whole bunch whole deal and police and firefighters. So the question is always, what can that 1%, what group will vote with them? And we spend a lot of time blaming the white working class. It's interesting to think about the fact that the unionized white working class did not vote for Trump. So it was a particular group of people who were persuaded to vote with the 1%. And a lot of them were women. And I think that this question of where do the best interests of children lie is a big question for women of, um, of all sorts of, of all different races, classes, um, including queer women. And so there was, there's been this sense apparently for since, Bill Clinton, that security was a key issue for white women, whether that meant foreign invaders or it meant what Trump was able to mobilize, the idea that Mexicans are rapists and African-Americans are thugs, and they're all male, apparently, right? Um, The Mexican story always cracks me up, and I talk about it in the book, is the suggestion that Mexicans are all rapists implies that they're also all men. But the fact is that the majority of Mexican immigrants are women. And there's a reason for that. Women are middle-class women, white and otherwise, are being increasingly pushed into the labor force by declining real wages. And so immigrant women are coming to do the reproductive labor that's been left behind, caring for the elderly, caring for people with disabilities who are too disabled to take care of themselves, and caring for children and household labor. It's all the stuff that's supposed to be invisible and unpaid, but obviously it becomes very visible when you have to do it because 
because the majority of women are entering the workforce. So the idea, uh, the question of how do you make how do you make immigrants into the villain if the majority of them are women? Right? right. Trump's Trump's universe is intensely masculinized. His universe of threat is masculinized. One of the things is you lie. You pretend that they're mostly men. The other one is that you create a labor force that responds to both parts of the Republican coalition. On the one hand, the 1% loves immigrants as long as they're vulnerable and underpaid. Right. Yeah. And the family values moral swing doesn't really care unless somebody tells them that they should care. And so mobilizing immigrants as a threat is effective for that. So what does the Republican coalition put together? It puts together an immigration policy that, while not consciously conceived this way, works extremely well. It makes immigrants vulnerable to deportation through um, immigrant enforcement of all sorts. And it continues to create the jobs that make our permeable border into uh, something that people are going to want to cross. It's getting to be less and less true under, under Trump that people are increasingly alienated from the U.S. in its current form. And immigration, which has been declining steadily since 2008, has continued to decline sharply, previously for economic reasons now, because the world of the U.S. seems so incredibly hostile to immigrants. Right, that's interesting, right, from 2008. So mm -hmm. I want to go to the topic of misogyny and the global gag rule. Which, from my understanding, yes. like all previous conservative presidents have pulled this at some point. But Trump has done this at a level that no one else previously had done. It's, you know, amplified. So can you explain what this global gag rule is? And so and the global gag rule is, again, a Reagan era innovation. And it, it says if any recipient of foreign aid, any agency outside the United States that's receiving aid, advocates abortion, not provides abortion, but refuses to condemn abortion, essentially, or has any, what that really means is if they have any formal relationship with any other agency that provides abortions, that, that they will cease to receive U.S. funding. And so every time a Republican president since Reagan has come into office, there's been a serious clamping down on funding for for essentially feminist agencies in outside the United States. Right. The interesting thing about Trump is that every time he disses women, he disrespects women intensely, it shores up his base. So I was talking before about how Reagan could unite the two wings of the party by going out and saying, these um, public programs, they only affect black folks and we don't care. And it was really interesting in the aftermath of the first Senate debate on the health care bill, where it became apparent that Mitch McConnell and friends were losing steam and losing people. People were very concerned about Medicaid funding. It matters that 50% of births in the United States are paid for by Medicaid. So Medicaid is intensely a feminist issue. And 
instead of going out front at, as Reagan would have and said, you know, this healthcare Medicaid expansion is bad because it's good for black people the way Reagan would have. Trump, surprisingly, went out and said something deeply misogynist about a television talk show host who was bleeding badly from a face. Right. Now, that was really curious, right? Everybody condemned it. Yawn. Um, we're so we're so bored with people like Paul Ryan saying, "Oh, he really shouldn't have said that." Um, but the more interesting thing was, right? I'll oppose I'll oppose everything about Donald Trump except his agenda, which I'm going to carry like a football. Um, the interesting thing was that did more to shore up his base than anything that Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell had been able to do up to that point. So there's a serious constituency that pays close attention to Trump and his Twitter feed that is misogynist by definition. Anytime you can dump on women, great. Now, on some level, that's not news, right? The Republicans have been dumping on women of color for forever, whether it's welfare reform or referring to subprime loans as losers' mortgages, knowing that they that lenders had disproportionately targeted black women, especially black mothers, for subprime loans. And the Tea Party is born through that rant about losers' mortgages. But the fascinating thing about Trump and his coalition is that they go after white women. And so the Mike Pence tweet of the all-white men group in the House debating taking away maternity coverage, on the one hand, some of us were like, oh my God, this is so shocking, this will mobilize people. They knew what they were doing. They were deliberately trying to rile up the misogynist base that is not afraid to go after white women either. And I think that's the legacy of four decades of attacks on women that are cloaked as attacks on women of color only, as if that were not bad enough. But it seems like there's a significant number of people who are willing to attack women of color. It's a thing to watch it expanding to attacks on white women. Right. I think this is the same the same group and the same wing that is, you know, popular on Breitbart, right? You know, the attacks yes. on women and the attacks on, you know, I was just reading an article on there the other day and I don't do this very often. It was talking about like why the sexual revolution was bad for women and why it was a why it's been a disaster. And and point number one, bullet point number one was that birth control causes depression. <laughs> so Right. Right. These are This is exactly the white female constituency I was trying to describe, right? That thinks that their family depends on denigrating other people's family. The well-being, appreciating the goodness of their family means understanding that all these slutty people who use birth control and don't keep their legs together, that's who we're going to attack. So can you clarify? So I understand who the audience is now, but can you clarify what the message is? So when he goes out and he says, you know, this person's bleeding badly from a facelift or this person's bleeding from her, you know, whatever. What is the message he's trying to send? That women's bodies are disgusting. That women's bodies are shameful. It's not a new story, right? I mean, we've been treated to the spectacle of mocking black women's bodies for forever. 
But the spectacle of mocking all women's bodies, regardless of race, that's new. Right. You know, I was thinking about this in a, earlier about misogyny and, you know, how it, it, it comes from a variety of places, right? Um, it comes from, you know, kind of an anger at women or, you know, the feeling that women are inferior and or, you know, a fear of women. And, you know, I'm not really sure what flavor of misogyny Trump has. I mean, I think it just sounds like all flavors just kind of rolled into one. Right. But I, I think one of the yeah, <laughs> I mean, I think, right. you know, his his involvement. Yeah, it's it's very old school, school, you know, and I think about his connections to, you know, connections to beauty pageants and, you know, his wives and, you know, the, the, the requirements that he has of women, the expectations and the standards he has of women. It reminds me of, you know, Naomi Wolf and, you know, um, there's a chapter in the beauty myth where she talks about the, the connection between aesthetic expectations around women and sex. And, and I feel like, you know, that's the flavor of misogyny that Trump has that, you know, if he insults a woman insults her appearance he's basically saying that you're not worthy and you're not worthy to be a sexual being right because you right. don't meet my expectations right all women are supposed to be sexually available all the time especially to people like trump i can't help but think of something i read recently about you know the scary dark corner of reddit where Hillary Clinton was referred to as it, and where especially white men who are divorced, hate their ex-wives, are all the time on and on about bitches and how bitches took their children and and are taking all their money. I think that that's one of Trump's core constituencies, partly because that's what he's like. Right. The, the, you're right. That is exactly what he's like. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking another, the other day also about the 2016 election and this meme that was going around about, you know, I don't vote with my vagina, which. <laughs> it's funny, but it's obnoxious, right? You know, and I, and, I, and I understand what they were trying to convey. You know, I don't vote, you know, I'm not going to vote for someone just because I'm a woman. But, you know, in this context, you know, the choice is between, you know, someone who is going to look out for your rights because they happen to share, you know, this thing that you have in common, which is really important, having a vagina. <laughs> so, you know, and this, uh-huh. and this person who basically hates you for having a vagina, you know, I think in that case, you know, it's okay to vote for someone who just because they're a woman, right? I mean, my vagina cast the vote. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you can't help but think of um, of the hot mic pussy grabbing as the alternative, right? Right. If you don't vote with your vagina, somebody's going to grab it. Um, yeah, but you know, and that that seemingly had no effect, which still baffles me to this day. I know it's really interesting. I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking about recently is. The sheer amount of, and that people have a lot of trouble defending feminism as such. And the, um, so the idea that women have common interests as women when our interests have been sharply divided also by race or class has made it really hard for folks to speak up for feminism. Now, the same is theoretically true about speaking up on behalf of immigrants, immigrants cross-class, cross-race, speaking on behalf of racially minoritized people, 
Latinos, blacks look like all different things and also cross class. But there's something intense about how we're how we're quick to pigeonhole feminism as the defense of elite women to speak in terms of white feminism and to really fail to see that misogyny is important and it's important particularly if we want to think about racially minoritized or impoverished people, which is why I keep coming back to the welfare reform example or the subprime mortgage crisis or the targeting of immigrants. These, all these issues particularly affect women. And it seems to me that feminism has been deeply fractured by an anxiety that it's not sufficient as a progressive politics. That somehow to speak on behalf of feminism is to stand up only for the rights of rich white women. And I'm, I think that that is the success of a backlash that has accused feminism of that when it's, I'm not saying no feminist in the history of the world has ever been elitist or racially stupid or even racist. But by and large, that's not feminism's politics. And so the combination of the fractured state of feminism at the moment and Hillary Clinton's own sort of inability to articulate a vision beyond, well, it's my turn, um, that people could really get behind. And Bernie Sanders also real limitations as a candidate, right? He couldn't excite core Democratic constituencies, couldn't excite um, as a group African Americans, Latinos, and immigrants. Well, that's a problem. You can't run as a Democrat that way. So we have two candidates who are not exciting in key ways, a complete failure on either their part to articulate an alternative to the growing military security complex, and we just it just the whole thing fell apart go ahead well you know sometimes i just wanted her to say hell yes you should vote for me because i'm a woman you know what because i'm going to protect your reproductive rights i'm going to make sure that you're paid equally right and she just never did that right she didn't fight back against the people saying you know your your gender is irrelevant which is just you know bull (laughs) her gender was relevant right there was one moment um for about one minute in the last debate where she stood up firmly for abortion rights and Donald Trump was sputtering about about late-term abortion and how in the ninth month um, fetuses were ripped from the womb. And somebody said, right, that was that's a cesarean. That's right. not an abortion. Um, <laughs> and they typically don't typically don't rip. <laughs> right. Ripping isn't a part of it. And, um, but Hillary Clinton stood up and said, look, um, when people have late term abortions, it's for some heartbreaking reason. And of course we have to have late term abortions, but the important thing is women have to have bodily autonomy in order to be able to articulate, to enact any other citizenship rights. If, um, if anybody down the street or, um, any sexual predator can take away your bodily autonomy and take the next 20 years from you while you raise the child, you can't be a citizen. I mean, that's my words, not hers, but it was similar. It was ringing. 
And you thought, wow, if you could have sounded like that for much more of the campaign, it would have been a much more interesting campaign. Right. I mean, I just think that, I mean, I think that her work over her career says that, right? But, you know, people don't go back in Wikipedia and look at what you did, you know, 20, 30 years ago. You have to tell them, right? Um, That's one thing. And I think partly it's just not her personality. That's more of Bill Clinton's personality and not her personality. I think she's generally more reserved. And then secondly, I think she was probably listening to the messaging of, you know, know, your gender isn't relevant and trying to respond to that. But what I, I... I hoped that she would do as kind of connect to that energy that we saw in the women's march, Mm -hmm. right? That energy was there. It was just waiting to be, you know, called upon, right? That's why the women's march was so surprising to me. Like I, I started to feel like, you know, where are we, you know, after the access Hollywood tapes, like no one is no one ever going to talk about this again, you know, and then the women's march came and then the, you know, the, the, the resistance is female came. So, you know, I mean, I guess, you know, Hindsight is twenty twenty. Like she couldn't have predicted that that energy would be there that she could have used. Right. And the question is, could it have been sustained over the course of a campaign? The other thing I think that was really hard for a lot of the young women I meet in my classes is that Hillary Clinton was so targeted for misogynist attacks um, that she began to seem very tainted, even if you couldn't articulate exactly why. Um, whether it was, you know, she was hiding health problems or she was sneaky or she was inappropriately linked to um, Wall Street. And there wasn't, there wasn't the space somehow to push back against that or articulate that as misogyny. And she wasn't a perfect candidate. She has become more and more conservative. I remember in 92, when Bill Clinton was first running, thinking, well, I wish it was Hillary. But (laughs) over time, (laughs) she became more and more associated with the board of Wall Street and the secretary of state. She was far from, she was far from the kind of progressive politics that I long for. Participating in the overthrow of Libyan President Gaddafi, participating in the overthrow of the government of Honduras, and the um, subsequent death squads, the death of Beta Cáceres, um, the environmental leader in Honduras, the indigenous environmental leader in Honduras, as a follow-on to the coup in Honduras. And because she never really talked about what her vision for international politics was beyond a kind of real politic that aligned her with Henry Kissinger, of all people, um, I think for a lot of people in my conversation circles, there was the sense of, well, it's not exactly my feminism, but why couldn't? people hold their nose and vote for the Democrat. I've been doing it my whole life. (laughs) Right. You know, um, I think one of the things when people say that, you know, oh, this politician or, you know, Hillary Clinton has moved to a little bit too far to the right for me, right? They're still Democrats, eh? You know, there's no comparison between, you know, Hillary Clinton and Paul Ryan or, you know, Mike Pence, right? I mean, she's, she's far, far left of those. 
But the thing is, is that what I tell people is the Democratic Party right now, they're so desperate to win back the House and the Senate. They're so desperate that they will move as far left as you want them to. That's <laughs> all they need is for you to push them. Right. Right. You know, you could you could the, the left could march in the streets and say, you know, we want public nudity everywhere. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> they, they would say, all right, you know what? You vote for us. We'll give that to you. Right. They will respond when the constituency speaks up. Right. And that's yeah. what we see happening now. You know, you know, Chuck Schumer and, you know, all of the, the, the Democrats, you know, speaking out and, you know, opposing nominees for Donald Trump. It's they're responding to what the constituency is asking for. I think that's right. And I just, believe it or not, got off the phone with um, the the Democratic gubernatorial candidate for um, Arizona. He's Steve Farley. And He's incredibly optimistic that he's going to be the next governor of Arizona. And he is way, way, way to the left of Hillary Clinton. But he belongs to a Democratic Party that has for years been articulating an opposition to to a very conservative and even centrist Republican Party in Arizona. And he says, we have so much wind in our sails from, from Donald Trump that the Democratic Party in Arizona is growing by leaps and bounds. And... I thought that was really an interesting insight. If if a very progressive candidate like Steve Farley believes he can win in a state like Arizona, this is an important moment for people to be fighting for political outcomes that they care about. And the most important thing is we don't get overly involved in taking apart every last one of Donald Trump's tweets instead. Right. The right. people I admire the most on, say, Twitter are the people who continue to articulate an agenda. Black Lives Matter, for example, the movement for black lives. The minute that the election was in, was underway, the final Republican and Democrat Democratic candidates had been selected, began to articulate step by step what a grassroots campaign for better policing and economic justice was going to be like. And I think that that's the key thing I'm trying to say in my book, is that feminists, racial justice movements, people on the left have have a family politics and they have an economic justice agenda, and we need to be paying attention to what it is because it's been systematically eroded by the gutting of the social safety net and the steady decline in real wages. And we need to be fighting for things on the ground that matter, from public transportation as the fight du jour where I live, Fights about will immigrant kids be protected in schools, fights over policing and what that's going to look like, fights for basic things like wages, the Fight for 15 campaign, fights over sexual harassment in workplaces that, interestingly, the Fight for 15 campaign has taken up. The day-to-day struggles over deportation. Fascinating thing about Donald Trump's administration is that they are not deporting as many people as Barack Obama's campaign did, or administration did. And the reason they don't is because they're not bound by laws and rules, which means that there's an incredible opening to fight in the courts in um, immigration hearings for 
the rights of individual people to stay. And so I think we've got to stay focused on the grassroots issues and the issues that matter to communities, to individuals, to families and households. I keep trying to use the word households instead of families because I feel like the right owns families. And <laughs> right. I care about households. I care about the well-being of households because my queer family with foster former foster kid in Arizona and my my queer partner and our IVF baby don't look like a family to the right but our household matters and the connections that we build with each other matter our well-being is what we need to be fighting for the well-being of households like mine and the well-being of households that are incredibly different from mine um, these are things that matter Beautifully said. I couldn't agree more. Awesome. (laughs) (laughs) So again, your book is titled How All Politics Became Reproductive Politics. And I'm so excited. It's coming out this September. Can I say the subtitle? Yes. How All Politics Became Reproductive Politics from Welfare Reform to Foreclosure to Trump. That's really important. I want us to stay focused on how it was racism and um, anti-immigrant politics that took away the rights of households and the well-being of households. And to remind us over and over again that for white folks who think, well, racism's too bad and it sucks to be them, but at least they're not coming after me, I want to remind people that when when people come after women of color, they're coming after all women. And it's only a matter of time before you're in the crosshairs too. Right, that's the Tina Fey quote. Oh, <laughs> that's right. I forgot you said that. You can't look away because it doesn't affect you this minute, but it's going to affect you eventually. That's right. And so that's my argument too about economics, that if you allow people to be impoverished, if you allow government programs for certain people to end, it's only a matter of time before it's not just poor people who are getting screwed, it's the middle class getting screwed. It's not just um, the people who are pushed socially to the margins that are going to get screwed. It's It's what we think of today as the center. And There's a small minority of Wall Street, the 1%, that's benefiting from this state of affairs. And the rest of us need to wake up and fight for households and communities in a different vein if we want to see progress, if we want to see our own well-being protected. Well, Dr. Laura Briggs, thank you so much for joining. Um, It's been a real pleasure. It's been great to talk to you. Take care. 